This is episode one of what I hope will be several episodes interviewing Sao Noan U, or commonly known or now known as Nellie Adams. Nellie is a Shan princess and was born in 1931 in the Shan states. She's written a book on her life called My Vanished World. You can try and find copies of this in the e-book shops. There's no e-book, but there are a few second-hand copies available. I really hope that Nellie will be able to read in some of the chapters about her life. But I thought I'd start with the first chapter to get things going. Nellie says, I'm the daughter of Sorbois, or Sao Hipa, in Loksak, a state in the Federated Shan States, or Mong Tai, an area of approximately 62,000 square miles occupying a quarter of Burma. Before the military coup in 1962, the Shan state was divided into 33, and each area, also called a state or Mong, had a number of towns and villages, the main town in each state carrying the same name. The Sorbois were hereditary princes, one of whom ruled in each of the 33 states. The Burmans, and later the British, used this title, which was a corrupt pronunciation of the Shan title, Sao Hapa, meaning Lord of the Sky. When the British advanced into Burma in 1886, the Sorbois not only willingly accepted the British administration, but some of them, like my grandfather, who was then heir to the Sorbois ship, joined the British army to overthrow the last of the Burmese kings. Once in complete control, the British government applied direct rule over central Burma, where the majority of the population were Burmans. The Shan state and other hill states, Kachin, Chin and Kareni, were allowed to remain autonomous. Thus, although geographically in Burma, the Shan state was politically independent of Burma until 1948. The British government, from its central office, a kind of mini Whitehall in Tangji, the capital town of the Shan state, appointed a British commissioner and six regional superintendents to assist him. Each superintendent liaised between the central office and the Sorbois of his region. Reporting to the commissioner were officers in charge of forestry, agriculture, education, health, transport and the environment, and they too worked closely with the Sorbois. Each Sorbois administered his own state with the aid of a prime minister, departmental ministers and a state judge. A Sorbois salary was dependent on a fixed fraction of the state revenue. Thus a Sorbois with a bigger and more prosperous state earned a higher salary than one with a smaller and less prosperous one. About 35% of the revenue was contributed to the central government and the rest was used for state administration. The Sorbois system of government might have appeared feudalistic to some foreigners, but the Sorbois were just leaders of their own people and, like the leaders of many other countries, were not above the laws of the land. A corrupt Sorbois who accepted bribes or mishandled state money 
would have had his title and power stripped from him and might have faced imprisonment. The Shan or Thai people believed in karma, destiny. The Sorbar and their descendants were born into a privileged position in society and were treated as royalty. The Sorbar was loved and revered by his people and expected to guide and advise them. His wife, the Mahadevi, was regarded as the matriarch of the land and his sons and daughters as princes and princesses. The elder son was the Kemmong, or heir to the Sobarship. The Sobar and the Shan people had great regard, respect and trust for one another, and for this reason they were able to create a stable, united and peaceful society, which endured for decades. All 33 states in the Federation were organised, according to more or less the same pattern as Lorksark State, varying only in size and activity. They, like Lorksark State, had large and small villages, each of which was overseen by a Hying, a village headman who had been appointed by the Sorbois. Members of the central government and the 33 Sorbois together formed a governing body for the whole of the Shan State, called the Shan State Council. It convened regularly in Tongji to discuss policy and the welfare of the people. The good understanding established allowed affairs to run smoothly and enabled all concerned to do their job efficiently. At that time, politics and governments were strictly men's affairs and women were kept well out of them, apart from on social occasions. Once a year, for example, after the main annual meeting, the Durba, the British officers, the Sorba and their wives were invited by the commissioner to a grand dinner in order to further friendly relations. Eight million people inhabited the Shan state, the majority being Shans or Thai. The history of the area before the 12th century is hazy, though it appears that the first entry of the Shans into Burma took place in the 1st century BC, when disturbances and rebellions in central China drove many people from that area to seek their fortune elsewhere. These people moved south into Burma and settled in the valley of the Nam Moa River, now known as the Sheweli or Nam Mai River. The second migration took place in the 6th century AD. These were the Sien, a mountainous race from Yunnan province. One group branching into Assam and India, conquering it in the 13th century AD, and in 1540 AD founding the Ahom dynasty. Most migrants settled on the Shan Plateau, east of the Irrawaddy, and some continued into Siam or Thailand. Although from a common root, these groups call themselves Assam, Shan and Siam, in their new found lands, the Shan migrants soon discovered that they were now free from the attacks and pressuring from neighbouring provinces and were so relieved that they called themselves free people. In the 12th and 14th century AD, the Thai, also from Yunnan, province in southern China, began to move south along the Salween River and again settled on the Shan Plateau and then continued further along the Menam River into Thailand. These people call themselves Thai in the Shan state and Thai in Siam and because of their common migrational stock their languages have many words in common. However, changes in dialect and accents over the years have contributed to their divergence. 
In their own language, the Shans call themselves Thai and their country, Mong Thai, instead of Shan State. It is not known why the Shan people came to have two names, Shan and Thai, and likewise the Thailand people have two names, Siamese and Thai. In addition to the Shan, the Shan state was, until 1962, the homeland of other ethnic groups, including the Kaur, Lahu and Lisor in King Tung state, the Waz in northeastern mountains, and Palang, Dangsu or Pao, Padang and other smaller groups in various parts of the state, especially in the hilly regions. Each of these groups had their own language, way of life, and dressed differently from the Shans and from each other. These numerous groups, in spite of their differences in culture and language, lived in peace and harmony with each other under the Sorbois administration. This stability was shattered in 1962 when the Burmese military seized power. Most Shan people have a pale cream complexion, often with rosy cheeks, because they work in the open air. With a few exceptions, they have straight black hair. They wore a short or long-sleeved jacket or blouse with five buttons, usually made of gold and precious stones. The sin was a long skirt reaching just below the ankle, with a black band at the waist. They are brightly coloured or patterned, and the jacket might have been white, coordinating or contrasting in colour with the skirt. For formal occasions, the women had their hair up, swept, in an oblong bun, decorated with a tiara and headpins made of precious stones. These were matched by necklaces, earrings and bracelets. Silk or finely knitted shawls would be draped from the shoulder to below the waist. The men's wear consisted of a pair of loose trousers, a white shirt and a jacket made of woolen, cotton or silk materials of sombre colours. On formal occasions they'd wear a pale coloured silk turban among the Shans, there is an enormous gap between the elite and the ordinary people in wealth and education. And although there were a few who were educated enough to be employed as teachers, nurses and engineers, or to earn their living as business people, the majority of them lived on the land. They were devout Buddhists, and if I had been asked to describe their national characteristics, I would have said they were simple and honest folks, generous gentle and softly spoken. The acceptance of their lives as peasants reduced their urge to better themselves. Their love of peace and the quietness of the countryside made them happy and content to till the fertile land. Unfortunately, this was not allowed to continue. They had been, by brutal force of the military, dictator rulers, uprooted from their fertile land. A land of distant horizons, hills and mountain ranges, the Shan state is blessed with naturally beautiful surroundings. Its temperate climate made it a very pleasant place to live and explore and in combination with sufficient amounts of rainfall man made the land fertile enough to grow all kinds of food crops. The most fertile area was along the basins of the Salween rivers and its tributaries and was known as the rice bowl of the Shan state. Because of their productive land, the Shans until recently have never suffered from under or malnutrition like other undeveloped countries. The dense forests of teak and softwoods such as pine and bamboo 
provided a good source of timber. Although many of the mineral sources remained untapped, a few like sapphire, ruby, silver, zinc and copper were being mined very successfully. This ends the first chapter and hopefully in the near future Nelly will be able to read other parts of the book. Thank you.